Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 8. So there's lots of unknowns, lots of unsolved mysteries, lots of things we don't understand, lots of things we can't understand, lots of things we just really don't understand. Do you know that scientists haven't figured out why it is that we yawn? (laughs) Uh, We don't know why it is we yawn. Now, there are lots of ideas as to why we yawn. There are those in the scientific community that would say, hey, as you yawn, there are certain hormones that are released into your bloodstream that cause your heart rate to go up to make you more alert. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Uh, there are others that would say, well, you know, yawning is a sure sign of fatigue or boredom. So, oh, all right, I guess there's that too. Uh, but then there's a growing number of scientists that believe a yawn has something to do uh, with uh, really cooling down our brain, that there's this, this, this thermal situation that happens that as we yawn, our brains get cooled down. Uh, the reality is, though, there's no consensus. We don't know exactly why it is we yawn. And, and I'm kind of glad for that, honestly, because as I look out and see yawning congregants, I know that it's not because you're bored or because you're tired, right? They haven't come to that conclusion. We're just not actually sure why it is. But what I want to know most is why are yawns contagious? Right? As we've been speaking about yawning, some of you are tempted to yawn even right now. Why are yawns contagious? And you know what science has to say about that? It has to do with empathy. It has to do with us really wanting to understand and mimic the emotions that we see on the person across from us. And interestingly enough, they have determined that psychopaths are not susceptible to the contagion of a yawn. So if you have somebody in your life and you're wondering if they're crazy, hey, just sit them down and yawn in front of them. And if they don't yawn back, maybe you're onto something. I, I don't know. Uh, but there's lots of things in life that we really, we just don't know. But this morning, we're going to look at something that Paul says we can know, that, that we ought to know, that in fact, we do know. Uh, we're going to look at something this morning that we can hang our hat on, a reality in our lives, a spiritual truth, a spiritual law. And so turn with me to Romans 8, chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we're going to look at one verse this morning. <clears throat> and it says, And we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. Now, I love this passage. I love the book of Romans. As we've spoke about earlier, the book of Romans is just one of those books. Uh, If you can say that you have a favorite book of the Bible, many people would say that Romans is their favorite book. I don't know if you can really say that or not, but it's so chock full of doctrine and theology and encouragement. But within the book of Romans, you have chapter 8. And if Romans is packed full, as far as the rest of the Bible, man, Romans chapter 8 is just chock full compared to the rest of Romans. There are so many wonderful promises in Romans chapter 8, and this is one of them. Man, that all things are working together 
for good, for those who love God, for the called, according to his purpose. Many of you have this highlighted already or underlined in your Bible. Many of you have this scripture memorized already. Why? Because it's a promise that we hang on to. And it's good for us this morning to remember this. It's good for us to remember these promises often because truthfully, life is difficult and life is hard. Uh, There are trials and offenses and difficulties And it's unavoidable. But what this scripture reminds us is that although there are difficulties that are a certainty, that's what Jesus told us, although there's difficulties, God is working all things together for good. And what an encouragement that is for us this morning. Lots of people going through lots of different things, and we can be assured that the Lord is working it all out. And Paul says, not only can we be assured, but that we can know, that we know this to be true. Now, how is it that we can know this to be true? How do we know that God is working all things together for good? How can we actually know that? Well, first of all, we can know that because God tells us. His promises are sure. God tells us, I'm working all things together for good. He lets us know that uh, that is a reality that we can hang on to. When God promises something, That is a reality that we can grab a hold of. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, God has proven his word to be faithful and true over and over and over again. And I won't go down the rabbit trail that I'm tempted to go down because I've gone down it many times before. But how do we know that we can actually trust God's word? Uh, that it's accurate, that it's true, that it's really God's word. And and we have looked at all sorts of things, from archaeology, from history, to the way that we compare the Bible to other uh, literary works of antiquity, the way that it holds up. But the greatest evidence that we have that the scriptures are truly God's word to us is the reality of prophecy. You see, that's what sets the Bible apart from all other religious works, is that it's chock full of prophecy. And not just vague, random prophecy. No, uh, specific. You guys uh, remember, what was that guy's name? It was Nosferatu. That's, uh, that's Dracula. What was the guy? Nostradamus. I, I remember when I was like in the sixth, seventh grade, everybody, oh, Nostradamus, he's telling me. And those are, you look into that, it's so bogus. Like the most vague sort of things that, that, that could happen. Like I could be Nostradamus. I am, I'm just going to say, I'm going to prophesy. Somebody in this room is going to be hungry around noon today. Right? And you'd be like, come on, really? But that's not the way the Bible is. The Bible calls things out with specificity. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the actual events, saying this individual will be king of this place and go by this name. Uh, Jesus prophesied in the book of Daniel that he was going to reveal himself as Messiah uh, at the specific time. And do you know that Jesus rode into the back or not into the back, he rode in, do you imagine Jesus riding into the back of like a civic on a donkey? No, that's not what I was going to say. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the exact day that he said he was really going to. See, prophecy is one of these things that we have where we can look to Scripture and say, wow, we know for certain that's God's word because of prophecy. And the greatest prophecy that we really have was a prophecy that Jesus gave us. And remember when the Pharisees, they, they really didn't believe Jesus' claims. Jesus claimed that he was God, that he was the Messiah. And so they said to him, show us a sign. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus prophesied his his death and his resurrection. He told his disciples, I'm going to be put to death, but he said, I'm not going to remain in the grave. Three days later, I'll be raised. See, prophecy is a wonderful thing. God never goes back on his word, ever. When he says it, boy, we can believe it, and that really settles it. That's the truth. And so how can we know that God is working all things together for good? Well, first of all, he tells us. Second of all, Not only has he told us, but God has shown us. See, whenever we get into this place to where we begin to doubt the promises of God, what we have to remember is that there is a link between the promises of God to us and God's love for us. His promises to us are linked to his love for us. See, Jesus, he did something very tangibly to demonstrate his love for us in that he died on the cross. He was bruised and he was beaten. He was mocked and scorned. He was bound and he was ridiculed. He was pierced and he bled. Why? Why did Jesus endure the cross? For you and for me and for you guys and you guys, for all of us, to save us, to set us free from our sin. Jesus died as a ransom to deliver us from the sin that we sold ourselves to. And here's the thing. You guys, Jesus didn't have to do that. Do you know that? He didn't have to do that. He wasn't obliged. He wanted to because he loves us. And that's what he said there in John 10, 18. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And why did he lay down his life? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before Jesus? It was us. It was his bride. It was his church. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And there is no greater expression of love than that, than to lay down your life for somebody else. And that's what Jesus would go on to say in John 15, 13. Greater greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so we know that all things work together for good because God told us and his word is true. Not only did he tell us, but he showed us. And you think about what an ultimate sign, what an ultimate reality of God taking difficulty and using it for good. To take the brutality of the cross and turn it into salvation for the world. Boy, he told us, he showed us, but not only that, he dwells in us. See, when you were saved, when I was saved, God's spirit came to dwell in us. That's why when Jesus was heading to the cross, he told his disciples, hey, I am going to go, but it's good that I go that I might send the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit into your life. And each one of us who are born-again Christians, who are saved, who have put our faith in Jesus, we have God's Spirit in us. Why is that significant? Because God's Spirit in us bears witness to us the truth of God's Word. And that's what Paul said uh, previously in this chapter, and we'll we'll look at that in depth on Wednesday night. But in Romans 8.16 Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we were children of God. See, the Holy Spirit, it bears witness to the truth of God's word, that we know it to be true because the Holy Spirit bears that witness in us. And so we know 
that all things work together for good. Because God has told us so and his word is trustworthy. Because he's shown us through his great love on the cross. He demonstrated that for us. And he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. We, we understand because his Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit. All things are working together for good. And I love that Paul really clarifies that. That, that what things are working together for good? All things. All things. Not some things. Not most things. All things are working together for good. All of them. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor Jeremy, that's great to hear you say, but it doesn't feel like a reality in my life. Uh, that's great. That You know, Paul says all things are working together for good, but it doesn't feel like it. And I lost my job. Or, or my finances are just in the toilet. I don't even know how I'm going to pay my bills. I'm telling you right now, God is working together for good. You don't understand, though. She dumped me. Or he left me. Uh, my life is a rest. A, a, a mess. He's working it together for good. I got a diagnosis though. or uh, My body's failing me. He's working it together for good. He's working all things together for good. All of them. Now, does that mean that all things are inherently good? Uh, of course not. Uh, you know, there are some things that are decidedly bad. Sickness is bad. Uh, you know, heartache is bad. Cruelty and hatred and unforgiveness are bad. But Paul recognizes the truth that God is taking those things that are bad and he's using even the most horrific of situations, the most tragic of things to bring good from them, through them, even because of them into your life and mine. Paul understands that God who is good, has a plan that is good to bring good into your life and into mine, even through those things that we consider absolutely horrendous. And again, we say, man, it just really doesn't, doesn't seem that way. And here's the good news this morning. It doesn't really matter if we, we sense it or not. If you are a Christian, it doesn't even matter if you're walking in it or not. It is a reality. It is a truth. It is a spiritual law. There is no wiggle room. God is working all things together for good in your life, whether you see it or not. Now, you can, you can tell me this morning, you know what, Pastor Jeremy, I, I'm not a big believer in gravity. You know, I've heard about this thing of gravity. I'm just not sure. And you can climb up on the roof, and you can swan dive out into the lawn, and you know what? You're going to be a firm believer of gravity real soon. It doesn't matter if you believe in gravity or not. Gravity is, is real. Have you guys ever seen the, the, the science project? They usually do it like in middle school or, or high school where they take a bowling ball and then you drill a hole in it and you attach a big rope to it so it swings like a giant pendulum. And then they take a kid and they kind of back him up against the wall. And you take that bowling ball and you bring it right up to the face and, and you let that bowling ball swing away and then swing back. But here's the thing. They're demonstrating through that... Uh, uh, through that, what is it, experiment, that the, 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 the law, the physical law of, of conservation of energy. Right? And conservation of energy just means that if you have an object and you put it up here, it'll swing exactly the same distance over there and then swing exactly the same distance forever if there were no friction. Right? So it can't go any further. It can't gain momentum. Uh, it, it's used to demonstrate uh, energy in its 
uh, potential and kinetic form. That, that is, it, it can't gain. There's a, a, a certain amount of stored potential energy, and, and then it turns into kinetic energy, but it can't gain energy. So those are physical laws. They can't be changed. And you can stand there and say, well, I know that without a shadow of a doubt. But you know what happens? Inevitably, 99% of the time, when you take that person and you back them against the wall and you let that 16-pound smile wrecker go and, and it's headed right for your chops, whoa, hey, you know, there's, there's dodging and weaving and flinching. Even though you know that there's no way it's physically impossible for that bowling ball to come and actually hit you in the chops. But that's the way we are sometimes with this promise of the Lord, aren't we? We know it's a spiritual fact that God is working all things together for good. And yet we flinch. And yet we say, well, it just doesn't feel like it. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've said before that for every, every New Testament truth, there's an Old Testament illustration. And we see this whole principle illustrated for us in the Old Testament story of Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob would go on to become Israel. His 12 sons would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, you know, his 12 sons, out of his 12 sons, he had a favorite. And Jacob's favorite son, you guys know, is, his name was Joseph. And Joseph was favored above all of his brothers. And to really show his love, Jacob took and gave Joseph a special coat. It was the coat of many colors, as many of your Bible translations say. The interesting thing about that translation is that a coat of many colors can also be translated a coat with big sleeves. You say, well, what difference does it make? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. A coat with big sleeves is pretty significant because in those days, you could kind of determine somebody's kind of socioeconomic standing, what they did for a living, based upon the outfit that they wore to work. And if you were someone who worked in the field, uh, or were a laborer, most of the time you would have very short sleeves or even uh, a, a vest. But you see, the bosses, the bosses had big sleeves. And in those sleeves, uh, you know, they would keep documents and contracts. And uh, even uh, some of the, the, the reading that I did on this said that they would keep food in there, snacks. I just imagine, you know, this boss pulling out a big old burrito out of his sleeve and <laughs> some maple syrup. Every time I think of Joseph and his big sleeves, I think of Buddy the Elf when he pulls the syrup out. Uh, if you've seen Elf, you'll know. If not, it's a good Christmas movie. Uh, but Joseph was given this, this coat of big sleeves because he was put in charge. Now, he was put in charge of his older brothers. Now, if any of you are older brothers who have younger brothers, one thing that you don't like is when your younger brother is in charge of you. And so they, it was a big deal, especially in their culture. And they grew to really resent Joseph, his brothers did, to really even hate him. And it didn't help that he was having these dreams. Right? Joseph would have these dreams. One dream, he had a, a dream where they were all represented by sheaves of wheat. And all of his brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheaf of wheat, really kind of acknowledging his authority over them. They didn't like that. But it didn't stop there. He had another dream where there was the, all these stars, the 11 stars that would bow down. And then there was the moon and the, the sun that even bowed down to uh, Joseph. And that was a, a picture of his brothers not only bowing down, but his, his parents. And it got to the point, really, where Jacob, Joseph's dad, was like, hey, son, maybe we should pump the brake on this whole dream thing. You know, Maybe we should stop sharing this with your brothers. But his brothers resented him. They hated him because their father loved him more, because he had a place of authority over them. And so they devised a plan to kill him. And one day, 
while they were out working, keeping their father's flock, Jacob sent Joseph to go check on his brothers. Go check on them. And as they were there with the flock, they saw Joseph coming from a distance. And they said, you know what? Here comes that shiny little dreamer. Let's, let's do away with him. Let's, let's murder him and throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. But then Reuben was like, hey, guys, wait a second. We don't have to just kill him and leave him for dead. Let's sell him. I'll have some walking around money to boot, and we'll be rid of him. And so they took Joseph, and they, they, they threw him in, or not Joseph, yeah, Joseph. They took Joseph, and they, they threw him into a pit, and they sold him into slavery. And they took that coat that their dad had given him, and they shredded it up, and they put animal blood all over it, and they took it back to Jacob and said, Dad, we're sorry, but a wild animal scarfed Joseph down today. He's no man, and, 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 and Jacob, he was absolutely devastated by this. But you guys know how the story goes. Through a series of miraculous events, over a series of many years, Joseph ends up becoming the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, arguably the second most powerful man in all of the world. He was the prime minister of Egypt. And during that time, there was a great famine now in the land. They were running out of food. And Jacob said to his sons, we have no more food. We have no more grain. What are we going to do? And Jacob said, I know that there's a guy in Egypt who was wise in the years of famine, and he stored away food for a time like this. And so he sent 10 of his sons to Egypt to go buy grain, holding back his youngest, Benjamin, because he says, hey, listen, I know what happened to Joseph, and I'm not going to be sonless. I'm, I'm not going to trust you guys with my youngest. So you 10 go to Egypt, you buy some grain, and then you come home. Well, they went to Egypt, and guess who they saw? Who was the one in charge of the grain? It was Joseph. Their brother, the one they had sold into slavery, left for dead, only they didn't recognize him. For you see, Joseph, he looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know. But they didn't recognize him. And so Joseph has this opportunity. He's like, all right, these guys don't recognize who I am. And he, he kind of messes with them a little bit. And he says, you guys are here to buy grain, huh? I don't believe you. I think you guys came to spy out the land, to find the weakness that you might steal from us or try to invade. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And his brothers say, well, no, listen, that's not, we came to buy grain. We are 12 brothers of the same family our dad sent to us. Our, 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 our one brother is dead. Our youngest brother is at home with dad. And Joseph said, okay, no problem. Prove it then. Go home and bring the youngster back to me, and then I'll know that your story is true. Until then, here's the grain. I'm keeping Simeon as collateral. Uh, You go home and you bring me your brother. And they went home and they told everything to their father, Jacob. And this is what I I wanted to get to. Here in Genesis 42, verse 36, this is Jacob's response. Genesis 42, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now, what was our text there in Romans 8, 28? All things are working together for good. And here Jacob says exactly the opposite. All things are working against me. That's the opposite of Romans 8, 28. Now, from Jacob's perspective, man, his perspective was very real. But his perspective was very wrong. Oh, man, Joseph is dead. Oh, man, Reuben is dead. 
oh man, uh, Benjamin is no more. He'll be killed too. See, he, he, he was wrong. He thought he knew what was going on. He thought he saw the picture clearly, but he didn't. Was Joseph dead? No. Was uh, Simeon, pardon me, dead? No. Would Benjamin die? No. See, what he thought had taken place, he was wrong about. What was currently taking place, he was wrong about. And what would take place, you can't get any wronger than that, really. He had no idea all things were actually working together for his good. As he sat there and made that proclamation, all things are against me. Actually, all things were for him. See, because the story continues. The famine, it continues on. The grain uh, that they brought home, uh, it, it ran out again. And so now they had no choice. What are we going to do? They left poor Simeon there in jail all the time. They were eating the, the grain back at home. I've never heard any sermon on that. Maybe I'll have to do one sometime. Poor Simeon. I guess he did sell Joseph, but, you know, there is that. Uh, but when the grain ran out, they had to go back to buy. Egypt was the only place to get grain. And in order to get grain, they had to take Benjamin. He says, Dad, we got to take Benjamin. He says, no way. We have to. No way. We have to. Okay. You got to take him. And so they went. And when they went back with Benjamin, that was when Joseph revealed himself, who he truly was. And could you imagine being a fly in the wall that day? To see the look on their face, that's Joseph, the one we sold. Oh, man. If they thought they were in trouble before, they're really in trouble now. But Joseph, after he had been all through, he, after everything he had been through, he was able to, to look his brothers in the face and say to them, but as for you, they're in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. See, Joseph, he, he was hated, he was abused, he was kidnapped, he was sold into slavery, he was falsely accused. He was left in prison to rot. But the Lord had a plan in all of it. It was through those circumstances that the Lord was doing something amazing, that he was really blessing Jacob and Joseph and us. See, we don't have the time to get into all the details of Joseph's story this morning. But what I want you to understand is that Without the hatred that his brothers had for him, there would have been no plot to kill him. And without the plot to kill him, there would have been no pit. And without the pit, there would have been no slavery. And without the slavery, there would have been no false accusation. Without a false accusation, there would have been no prison. Without prison, there would have been no opportunity to interpret dreams. Without the opportunity to interpret dreams, there would be no going before Pharaoh. Without going before Pharaoh, there would be no prime ministership. With no prime ministership, there would be no way for uh, Joseph to bring his family to Egypt. Without Joseph's family coming to Egypt, there would be no Israel. With no Israel, there would be no Messiah. With no Messiah, there would be no salvation. You see how that works out? And from we see one little thing, we say, oh, things are against me. But all things weren't against him. They were working together for him. See, Joseph understood that. He did. He, he, he got it. And he knew that it was more than just about his own life. It was more than just about Jacob. It was more than just about Joseph. Because did you catch that? What Joseph said to his brothers? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this day to save many people alive. 
See, it was about much more than just Jacob and Joseph and their family. It was about more. And when we are going through things, I want you to understand this this morning. We say all things are working together for good. But sometimes the Lord will use difficulty in your situation and in my situation to not only bring about good in my life, but to bring about good in the lives of those around me. My family members, my neighbors, my coworkers, uh, the people that God has put in my life. It's not always about me. Be encouraged by that, that the Lord, through your difficulty, might be bringing about good in someone else's life, even. So God is working all things together for good in Jacob's life. No doubt about it, whether he believed it or not. See, it, he, didn't, he wasn't walking in faith. He, oh, Lord, everything is falling apart. But the Lord was still at work. It's that spiritual law. It, it's a reality that can't be undone. See, and that's my point this morning. You know, we can't really say man, that, that this thing is bad or that this thing isn't bad because from our perspective, all things are, are skewed. We don't see the whole picture. We see one little tiny part of the picture. We don't really know what's bad because we don't know the beginning from the end like God does. And that's why God can tell us, I'm working all things together for good. So there's this old Chinese proverb about a, a farmer. And uh, this farmer, he, he lost his horse. His horse ran away. And all of his neighbors came over and said, oh, man, we heard your horse ran away. That's really bad. And the, the little Chinese farmer said, how do you know? And the next day, the, the farmer's horse showed back up. But with that horse, he brought a couple other horses. And his neighbors came over and said, wow, you have two horses now for free. Your horse brought back, brought back these other horses. That's such good luck. That's so good. And the farmer said, well, how do you know? And then a week later, his son was training one of those new horses, and that horse trampled him and broke his leg. And all of his neighbors came and said, oh, that's so terrible. He said, how do you know? A couple days later, there was a war that broke out, and all the young men were drafted to fight in that war. But because the farmer's son broke his leg, he didn't have to go to war. And all of his neighbors said, wow, isn't that great? That's such good luck. He said, how do you know? And then when the war was won and everybody was coming back in victory, those soldiers, they were given great riches and honor because they had triumphed. But the farmer's son was left out because he didn't go to war. And all of his neighbors said, well, that's terrible. That's bad. And he said, how do you know? See, we could just go on all day, right? We just keep on adding to the story until Christmas. But the reality is we just don't know. But you know who does know? The Lord. And the beauty about this is we don't have to know to trust. Uh, as Christians, we can be uh, people who just rejoice, even in the midst of difficulty. That we don't have to say, oh man, that's such a bummer. Uh, it's interesting, my son, who I love very much, Elijah, he's, he's down visiting us from, from Portland and I love to spend time with him. You know, it's interesting, as your kids grow up, you realize, man, how much you really, you really miss them when they, they move away. But he, he came down, you know, and, and he had a flat tire on his, his car and, and he, he called us out to come and, and look at it. And, uh, you know, he, he's in this situation, oh, I got a flat tire and, and Les Schwab is closed and so now I'm going to have to spend money at, at, at Costco to get tires on my way home and all this and that. And, you know, the first thing, I've been studying this all day, mind you, yesterday I was studying. And the first thing that came out was, oh, bummer, buddy, that's such bad news. <laughs> right? Really, we don't have to say bummer. Instead, I should say, oh, Lord, you know what, bud, all things are working together for good. You can rejoice even this, you know. But I fell into that situation like... Jacob. I said, oh man, all things are working against you, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wasn't very encouraging. Sometimes it doesn't always pay to have a pastor as your dad. I'm just saying. <laughs> but at any given moment, really, we can be a Jacob or we can be a Joseph. 
We say, oh man, all things are working against me. What a bummer. Or we can say, Lord, even what they meant as evil, you mean for good. And I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to trust you in that. You see, when I choose to be a Jacob, when I choose to look at my circumstance and say, oh, woe is me, what I find is that I become cynical, I become critical, I become cranky, I become despondent. But the Lord is still at work. And that's the good news. Aren't you glad? Like, if I was my kid, and, and, and you know, uh, I was the Lord, I guess I can't be my kid and the Lord at the same time. How would that work? Right? You know what I'm saying? If I was the Lord and my kid was complaining at me, even though I promised him, I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything for you until you get a better attitude. Maybe some of you even have said that to your kids. But the Lord's not like, all right, I'm going to wait for you to just shape up and figure this thing out and walk in the truth that I've... No, he's still working all things together for good in your life. So you're free to be cranky. No, that's not what I'm getting at. Right? See, you are free to be cranky. The Lord is still going to work all things together for good. But what happens is you get robbed of the joy that you could be experiencing presently. See, like Joseph, no matter where he was, he just said, Lord, I trust you. I know you're good. I know you're going to do something good. And I don't understand how you're going to make it happen, but I know you're going to. And no matter where Joseph went, he just did the best that he could, rejoicing in the Lord. He's, I'm going to be the best prisoner I can be. You know, he, before that, he was a slave. I'm going to be the best slave I can be. For, he just, I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord. And we can do that. We can rejoice in our circumstances. We can be thankful in our circumstances. We can be thankful for our circumstances. You say, no way. Thankful for our circumstances? You know, during the Second World War, when Hitler was just committed to exterminating the Jewish people, there was a family in Holland who was committed to helping the Jews, the Ten Boom family. And when Nazi Germany invaded and occupied Holland, when Jews began to turn up missing, uh, when slogans started to appear spray-painted around town against Jews, when the Star of David started appearing on Jewish clothing, uh, the Ten Booms, they said, you know, we're going to start hiding Jews to keep them safe because we know that they're getting sent off to these concentration camps. And so they were committed to really hiding these Jews in their house to keep them from uh, going to the concentration camps. But one of their neighbors actually ratted them out. And the Ten Boom family... Uh, Casper was the dad. He was a watchmaker. You guys know the story. It's The Hiding Place. It's a great book. Uh, and then Corey, uh, his daughter, and Betsy, one of his other daughters, they ended up being sent to the very concentration camps they were trying to save the Jews from, from going to. And they were there in those absolutely deplorable conditions. Uh, abuse, mistreatment, death almost seemed like a certainty. And it was there in a cold dark, damp, flea-infested barracks where Betsy Tenboom uttered the words, Lord, thank you for the fleas. And her sister said, what are you talking about? I'm not going to thank God for the fleas. And she went on to explain why she was thankful for the fleas. Because their straw bedding was so infested with bugs and fleas that the soldiers were actually afraid to go inside the barracks. And because they wouldn't go in, the ladies were able to pull off Bible studies with the few pages of scripture that they had smuggled in. And because they were able to have Bible studies, women were getting saved left and right. 
And so they were able to be thankful. And see, that's the difference. The Lord's working all things together for good either way. But are we going to be joyful, thankful? Even as 1 Thessalonians uh, 5 tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. When should we rejoice? Always. It doesn't say rejoice when things are going your way or rejoice when things are easy. Rejoice always. Pray when continually and in everything. Give thanks. In everything. In those things that we deem bad, we can give thanks in those things. And what an amazing reality that is that we can walk in this morning. What an amazing truth that is. Whatever you're going through, good or bad, we can say, Lord, I'm thankful. I'm going to rejoice in that. I'm not going to let anything steal my joy because I know that you're working all things together for good. It's a fact. You know, I love Romans 8.28. It really is a good passage, mainly because it's so applicable to our lives. Right? As we go through different seasons, that's a hope that we hold on to. And Romans 8.28, this idea that God is working all things together for good, not an idea, it's a truth that God is working all things together for good. Now, we have experienced that together as a church family. Uh, we really have. And so, you know, we've been in this whole situation, and I, I want to just level with you guys and kind of let you know what's going on with, with church. Uh, you know, when we were at Gold Street School, man, it was such a great spot. We were there for like 10 years, and we grew in that church, that little space. It was so good for our kids. And we had little kids that started out just, just like in, in nursery almost, like as just toddlers. And the time we were there, boy, they worked their way up. They're going to youth group and everything else. And, and then that place that we were so comfortable in, that school that we loved so much, boy, we got the word. It's going to become a school again. And, and we knew it to be so. We were on a year-to-year basis. Uh, I'm glad that it's a school. I, I really am. But it was a, a drag. And, you know, we went into this, this, this kind of mode. We're like, all right, Lord, what do you have for us? And if there was a door to knock on, we knocked on it twice. If there's a rock to flip over, we flipped it over twice. And we just, you know, we just got used to saying, praise the Lord, closed door. That was like my thing. Like, all right, door slammed in my face, praise the Lord. That was just like the thing. But over time, I began to say, oh, praise the Lord, the door closed. Right? And, and you know, we thought that the, the train station was going to be it. And, and through a series of just really miraculous events. The Lord shepherded us into this situation by his timing where well, we have this relationship that was developed with the owners of the train depot. They had a huge sale to clear it out that we might use it. We had plans drawn up. We had people committed to help finance it. We had quotes from, you know, for building. I mean, we were, we were going for it. And then we went and we met with the city to say, hey, just want to let you guys know what we're doing. And they said, huh. And they crushed all of our hopes and dreams. No, not really. I mean, they were much nicer than that. But they basically said, unless you have a couple million dollars in your back pocket to take care of the infrastructure that's necessary to have that sort of occupancy there, it's just not a possibility. I said, oh, Lord, we thought, and we invested, and we did this, and I was really kind of having a bit of a, a, a Jacob moment. But at that meeting, they also brought to the table a solution. They said, hey, I don't know if you'd be interested or not, but the community theater and the community center are available during the times that you want. And, and maybe we could work out a long-term contract. You guys could put in a playground and you guys could have all sorts of stuff going on. I said, yes, Lord, thank you so much that you're shepherding us into this. And then as we got closer, they said, well, actually, the theater's not available. There's an HVAC issue and you guys aren't able to use that. But it'll be done in a couple months. 
in a couple months turn into a couple more. I'll be done in the fall. It'll be done this winter. It'll be done next year, and, and so on and so forth. And, and we found that to be the case with the city that, that work. And I'm told this is a regular thing when you work with the government. Things just move incredibly slow. As far as the city goes, people I've talked to say that they're actually moving pretty quickly. But all that said, and that kind of got yanked, and then some things changed. They said, well, you know, I don't know about the playground. And so we bought bouncy houses, and they said, well, you guys can't use the bouncy houses. And, and I'm just in this place, and I was like, Lord, as an under-shepherd, like, we need a place for the flock, a place of security. Like, what are you doing, Lord? And I really got into this place where I was like, where's our contract? We need our contract. And I bugged the city every day. And we need the security of the contract. I was just like, focused like a laser beam. And the contract never came. And the contract never came. And the contract, and I got more irritated and more irritated and more irritated. And then one day I got a phone call. And it was a guy that I had worked with in the construction industry. He said, hey, I'm an elder at this church. Uh, you know, our pastor is moving away. We're not going to look for another pastor, and we were just wondering if you wanted to buy our, our church building. And when I came to, and I stood up, he was still on the phone. I said, whoa, you still there? And, uh, and through a series of, of miraculous events, I, I, can't, I, I wish I could share the details, but <clears throat> the Lord has really shepherded us into this great place to where we, as a church now, are in escrow. We're buying a church building. It's already a church. We can, yes, isn't the Lord good? So I, I wanted to share that with you guys, man, that the Lord really is working all things together for good, even when we're cranky. And, and we should close escrow in a couple weeks, and we got some work to do, but man, what a beautiful thing the Lord has done for us. And you know what? He reserves the right to change his mind, right? This could be a, another Romans 8.28 sermon down the road. Oh, we thought it was going to be the church and the Lord, but we can rest assured knowing that the Lord has got us. And so in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those difficulties, Man, don't be robbed of your joy. Don't be robbed of your peace. Trust the Lord. Walk as Joseph did. Now, I know that I'm running late, but there's something that we can't leave undone as we look at this verse. Because if you read it closely, maybe you picked up on this. This is a promise that is conditional. This is not a blanket promise for the world. And maybe you have heard people say uh, in your life, well, everything happens for a reason. Have you ever heard people say that? that? That's the world's version of Romans 8.28. There's no hope in that statement. Well, all things happen for, are, are they happening for a good reason? Are they happening for, see, we have the hope that all things are working together for good. But who is that promise for? And, and, and Paul tells us it's not a blanket statement for just the world. He says it's for those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. And this is important for us to understand. This is an if and then statement. If you love God, if you are the called, then he's working all things together for good. So how do we know if we love God? What, is it, what, is it, what does it mean to love God? Well, first of all, what does it really mean to love anybody? And before we even talk about that, we have to remember that our capacity to love God comes because he loved us first. The Bible says that we love God because he loved us first. We don't even have the ability to love God until he first loved us. But what does it mean to love God. What does it love to mean, or what does it mean to love somebody? It, it, it means that you want to know them better, that you want to spend time with them, that you are invested in them. The Bible tells us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And we've rightly applied that scripture when it comes to 
tithing. That the Lord has, has really made that command. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And when we give unto the Lord financially, there's this weird connection there. But it's not just a monetary thing that the Lord is talking about. Where your treasure is, where your talent, where your time, where your effort, where your energy. What are you investing your life into? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your whole entire life about golf? Are you invested into fishing? Are you invested into hunting? Whatever it is. Or are you invested in the Lord? Do you desire to know the Lord more? Do you desire to spend time with the Lord through prayer? That's how you know. if you. That's the litmus test. Do you love the Lord? And are you invested in the Lord? Do you want to spend time with the Lord? Do you want to grow in the Lord? But not only those who love the Lord, but those who are the called. Not just those who are called, those who are the called. And what does it mean, those who are the called? It means those that God has chosen. See, Pastor Jeremy, you're making me nervous. I'm not sure, you know, am I one who loves the Lord? And I try to. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. I'm having hard. Listen, if you love the Lord, then you'll want to get to know him better. Just walk with him, pursue him. But what does it mean that you're chosen, the called? It means that the Lord chose you. And how do we know that? Because we have verse 30. Verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. Whom he called, these he has also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm called? There's one easy way to know. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place to pay for your sins? That he was buried and three days later rose again. Do you believe that? Yes. Then you're chosen. You say, great. Well, I chose God then. No, he chose you before he ch- you chose him. And then there's this debate that erupts. Calvinism, Arminianism, and we'll unpack that a little bit more on Wednesday night when we have time. But no, if you believe, you are the chosen. Who did Jesus die for? For the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I've never really believed. How do I even know that I can believe? How do I even know that, that I can be chosen? God died for you. He gave you the opportunity to believe. And you've never put your trust in the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he died substitutionally for you on the cross, that his sin was poured, or our sin was poured out upon him, that his righteousness might be poured out upon us. And believe, the Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. He died on the cross, he was buried, and that he rose three days later, and you will be saved. Do that work this morning. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Say, I'm not sure how. Just go before the Lord and say, I believe. It really is that simple. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. I believe that you died and I believe that you rose. And then let the work begin. See, we get into this frame of thinking that we have to get our lives all cleaned up and then we can come to the Lord and we can ask. No, you come as you are. You say you believe and then he does the work in your life through the Holy Spirit. That's the beauty. So do that work this morning for the rest of us. And I want to encourage you again to, to walk out this life trusting the Lord to be encouraged this morning as you are reminded this morning that he is working all things together for good. Whether you're trusting him in it or not, it's a reality that he will work in your life. But let us be a people who walk through the difficulties of life with joy 
and not in, in sadness and, and, and depression. That we would take a hold of all that the Lord has for us this morning. And as we come to the table of communion, what an awesome opportunity to remember who the Lord is in our life and what he's done for us. Because again, man, I can't think of a, a better example of how something that was absolutely devastating and tragic can be turned into something so beautiful as the cross. Jesus was so brutalized. He wasn't even recognized as a man. He was nailed to the cross and ridiculed. And God took that devastating situation and brought about our salvation and our joy eternally through that. So as we come to the table this morning and remember, as you hold the bread that represents his body, and remember that he was bound, that he was bruised, that he was beaten, that we might experience freedom. As you take the cup, the juice that represents his blood, remember that your sins, though they were scarlet, they've been washed white as snow. That we have been justified just as though we have never sinned because of the work of the cross. Take in those truths this morning and rejoice in the fact that no matter what we're going through, it's a reminder if God can turn that into beauty, he can take whatever you're going through and bring goodness out of it as well. And so, Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the promise that we looked at this morning. Thank you that you're working all things together for good. For those of us who love you, Lord, for the called according to your purpose. I pray that we would take that truth in as we come face to face with the cross this morning. That as we spend some time with you during communion, that that would become a reality in our life again. And Lord, I just, I praise you. I praise you that we can have the confidence that we have in who you are. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And as we come to the cross, we remember, even as you told us to, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.